Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Giliotti, Ph.D. 12. The Atonement of Jesus Christ How do scriptures identify Jesus Christ as Israel's God, Jehovah? Do Latter-day Saints understand the interplay between God's divine justice and mercy? Welcome to podcast number 12, The Atonement of Jesus Christ. We're going to refer a lot to the Book of Mormon for this one, but also to Isaiah, as Isaiah covers doctrine as well as the prophecy. From Mosiah 15.1, Abinadi, Jesus Christ is God himself come to earth. Abinadi said unto them, I would that you should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. There, we have him saying God himself, evidently referring to Jehovah of the Old Testament, because that's who the Old Testament talks about as the God of Israel and God himself. So how does Abinadi know about this? How does he know that God himself will come down among the children of men and redeem his people? Yourself that question. Well, he knows it from the book of Isaiah which was the main prophecy that Abinadi quotes to the priests of King Noah, correct? So then we read in Alma 42, 14 through 15, also that God himself atones for the sins of the world. We're into now the spiritual salvation of God's people and of humanity as a whole. It says, All mankind were fallen, and they were in the grasp of justice, Yea, the justice of God, which consigned them forever to be cut off from off his presence. So, let's look at that just by itself. When Adam and Eve transgressed, when anyone transgresses, what happens to them? Can they live in God's presence? And no unclean thing can live in heaven. We have an unclean thing, a person who, who has transgressed, or humanity that has transgressed, the descendants of Adam and Eve. So we were all lost and fallen unless there was some atonement made, correct? Which means that we're totally under the law of justice at that point, the justice of God. If he's a just God, he has to abide by the rules, by his own laws, which he does. So we cannot dwell in his presence, and nor could Adam and Eve. They were cast out into the lone and dreary world. Now what happens then? And he says, and now the plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. So there's the justice of God, but God also has a plan of mercy, a plan, a plan of salvation, same plan. Unless an atonement should be made. Because why? Because there has to be restitution in kind made to God. If a man or Adam or anyone transgresses against God and he wants to compensate for the wrong that has been done, what should he do? He needs to make compensation or restitution in kind that is equal to the offense. And if the offense is against God, who is an infinite quantity, so to speak, he's an eternal God, then the atonement itself has to be equal to God. And that means it can only be made by a divine being himself, 
It cannot be made by a human being, a transgressor, a sinner. So that's why he says, therefore God himself atoneth for the sins of the world. The atonement has to be made by God himself. To bring about the plan of mercy, to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect, just God, and a merciful God also. So the whole plan is just. The atonement pays for the transgression under the law of justice, and thus it brings into being a plan of mercy. Because the atonement has satisfied the demands of justice. Right, so we read on in 2 Nephi 9, verses 5 through 7, the interplay between justice and mercy. The Book of Mormon is beautiful. It's truly a second witness of Jesus Christ, especially as far as the atonement of Jesus Christ is concerned. It behooveth the great Creator that he suffereth himself to become subject unto man in the flesh and die for all men, that all men might become subject unto him. And so what's going on here? Subject unto men in the flesh? So while he is making the atonement upon the earth for the transgressions of all men, he makes himself subject to men in the flesh. Why? It's an integral part of his atoning. The main themes of the book of Isaiah when you look at them, are ruin and rebirth, suffering and salvation, humiliation and exaltation, punishment and deliverance, disinheritance and inheritance. Seven pairs of opposite themes. And so we see that in order for him to be exalted to a higher level and attain his father's throne, he had to be humiliated to the utmost depths, so to speak. This humiliation before exaltation. He suffered in order to bring salvation. He was ruined before he brought rebirth to himself and to humanity. He was disinherited in order for him to inherit all things and so forth. There's a beautiful way that Isaiah paints. It's, it enriches the gospel of Jesus Christ to our understanding so much more. And we see salvation and exaltation in their proper context. And so being subject to men in the flesh and being accused by men and put to death and so forth and utterly humiliated as a God of Israel, that was part of his atonement. It was his descent phase before his ascent phase when he was resurrected at the end. So even Jesus Christ himself had to keep his law under his covenant with the Father, it's the same as we all do, though we do so on lesser spiritual levels at this point in time. It says, For as death has passed upon all men, that is through Adam, to fulfill the merciful plan of the great Creator, there must needs be a power of resurrection. But remember that now we're in the body. Man transgressed in the body and so he's cut off from God in the body. But of course, the spirit is housed in the body. So we're cut off, although we can pray and communicate with God with the spirit in our spirits. And the resurrection must needs come unto man by reason of the fall. And the fall came by reason of transgression, 
And because man became fallen, they were cut off from the presence of God. The same thing that Abinadi had said. Therefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement. Save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. Well, this corrupt body could not become a resurrected body, a permanent body. So, to make recompense or restitution in kind or equal to the offense against God, an infinite being, the atonement itself has to be infinite. And that is what's going on here. But once you atone for the transgression, then death, which is a covenant curse that has come upon humanity because of transgression, then that can be reversed. And that's why it brings about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of Jesus Christ, and to us. I'm going to discuss that in a little bit more in a moment, how a proxy savior, what he attains for himself, also is attained for those who keep his law. And that would be all of God's people who believe in Jesus and who take his name upon themselves and become his covenant people. Wherefore, the first judgment, without the atonement, which came upon man, must needs have remained to an endless duration. We would have remained under the law of justice, no mercy. And if so, this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to its mother earth, to rise no more. So justice, under God's law, because he's a just God, if he's not a just God, he'd not be God, right? But also mercy, because he foresaw this whole situation ahead of time. I used to think Adam made a big mistake <laughs> in my youth. That's funny. No, it's all part of God's plan because something beautiful happens in the end. And we go to Alma 42 again, verses 23 through 24. Only the truly penitent are saved. He says, Mercy claimeth the penitent, and mercy cometh because of the atonement, as we just saw. And the atonement bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead, and the resurrection of the dead bringeth back men into the presence of God. Well, we were in the presence of God as spirits. But now what happens? When we are resurrected, we come into God in our bodies. This time it's in our bodies, in a sanctified state, hopefully. That is the gain of mortality. Passing through mortality is the optimum way that we can become like God and come into his, his presence in our bodies. And thus they were stored into his presence to be judged according to their works, according to the law and justice. For behold, justice exercises all his demands, and also mercy claimeth all her own, and thus none but the truly penitent are saved. There is no mercy for the wicked if they don't repent. Those who remain in their sins, who don't repent, remain under the law of justice. And that's all they experience is justice, justice, justice. And what a shame that is. So none who believe in Jesus really can experience this mercy until they do. And then when they do, everything changes for them. They can be forgiven of their transgressions 
and the plan of mercy can then be exercised toward them. Then we read in 2 Nephi 9, verses 18 and 19, those who inherit the kingdom of God. He says, Behold the righteous, the saints of the Holy One of Israel. Well, that makes sense because saints means holy ones, right? Or sanctified ones. And they are emulating the Holy One of Israel. In the book of Isaiah, we learn that he's called Holy, 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 chapter 6. In Hebrew, translation means the most holy. He's the most holy, but it also tells you there are three degrees of holiness. And they who have believed in the Holy One of Israel, they who have endured the crosses of the world and despised the shame of it, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. So there's more involved than just believing in Jesus, right? And taking his name upon you. If you truly take his name upon you, you will be persecuted. You will suffer the crosses of the world. You will be despised by worldly people and even persecuted, no end. The more holy and righteous you become, the more Satan will single you out for persecution. And he'll find a way to make you feel it. So these people, the holy ones, the saints, who emulate the Lord in his holiness, they are willing to suffer these things. They are the fellowship of the suffering of Christ, right? They join their sufferings with those of Jesus. Because far more is going on than just the salvation of our souls, the souls of humanity. There's also the salvation of the earth itself There's, and the restoration of God's people. And suffering begets these things. Suffering pays the price for something. And we offer our crosses and our sacrifices to God and endure our descent phases as we keep God's law and we meet opposition. All of that has an amazing healing effect upon us, upon God's people as a whole, and upon the earth itself. The earth also needs redeeming from the fall, right? We're living in a celestial earth, and the more people suffer in Jesus' name, the more the earth itself rises to a higher vibration, so to speak, until the time comes when enough of us have done that and the earth changes to a terrestrial sphere, a millennial paradisical state. They shall inherit the kingdom of God which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world. But God had this plan from the beginning that we should return to him in our bodies and enjoy with him glory or exaltation forever. It says, and their joy shall be full forever. O oh, the greatness of the mercy of our God, the Holy One of Israel, for he delivereth his saints from that awful monster, the devil, and death, and hell, and that lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. Really? Monsters? Yes. When you understand ancient Near Eastern mythology, you understand that the powers of chaos were regarded as monsters. Powers of chaos were monsters. They were personified in certain people. And certainly the devil and death, he's the, he's the agent of death, and hell, which is likened to a, a woman, and the lake of fire and brimstone, where, which is endless torment, where people are, even their spirits may die. So yes, we're delivered from the monsters, 
and delivered into God's presence. And God, of course, is the opposite of a monster. He's the most loving God. Next we go to Isaiah to see what Isaiah says about the plan of salvation, the things we just covered from the Book of Mormon. Jehovah grants a remission of, of sins in Isaiah 43, verses 24 through 25. Jesus says, or Jehovah says, You have burdened me with your sins, wearied me with your iniquities. Of course, we know that sins and iniquities, are, there's a distinction between them, right? There's the sins or offenses we commit that are errors, so to speak, and we, we acknowledge them and we repent of them and we're forgiven of them. But iniquities are generational dysfunctions coming closer that have continued down the generations and that we may have inherited or also, also increased ourselves by our own misconduct. And then he says, But it is I myself and for my own sake who blot out your offenses, remembering your sins no more. So he himself takes the initiative to deliver us from the law of justice, as we just read. He does it for his own sake, because he's a just God and a merciful God also. So it's all his doing, really. We're the ones who are in error. We're the ones who fall, who transgress. He says, I'll blot out all your offenses, remembering your sins no more. But one condition, right? One condition that we repent of them. Otherwise, mercy cannot have any effect upon us, and we remain under the law of justice. Next we go to Isaiah 44, 22, very similar. Jehovah forgives his people's offenses. He says, I've removed your offenses like a thick fog, your sins like a cloud of mist. Return to me, I have redeemed you. Now the Hebrew word for repent is to return. He's saying repent. Repent, I've redeemed you, which is the condition of being redeemed. But it also shows that our offenses are like a thick thick fog and a cloud of mist, which keep us from God. It keeps us from seeing things right. And you know that the more wicked people become, the more they are engrossed in their sins, that their minds are clouded. Isaiah even talks about people like that being decreated, becoming less than they once were. Your sins like a cloud of mist, you know, it reminds you of the, the tree of life image that Lehi and Nephi saw, where when they held on to the rod of iron, it took them through the cloudy mist that covered the, the land. And the people who had let go, of course, were in the state of their sins. Next we go to Isaiah 53, 7-8, which is also quoted in Mosiah 14, 7-8 by Abinadi. Jehovah dies for his people. That's what Isaiah says, like a lamb led to slaughter. Well, yes, the Lamb of God. Where does that expression come from? It comes from Isaiah 53. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep dumb before its shearers, he opened not his mouth. In other words, he suffered, humbly suffered, offered up his suffering as a sacrifice to God on our behalf. That harks back to animal sacrifice under the law of Moses, right? But the next part of the verse has a different connotation. It says, by arrest and trial he was taken away. And that is what happens to a vassal king who rebels against his emperor 
only it was not he that rebelled against his emperor, the Father, the Most High God. It was we who rebelled. But he had to answer for his people's transgressions, and that is what he does here. He had to answer for his people's disloyalties to the emperor, which were our disloyalties. So it says, Who can apprise his generation that he was cut off from the land of the living for the crime of my people to whom the blow was due? He took the blows for us. The blows were due us, but he took them upon himself as our proxy savior. And I'm going to explain that more in a moment. Let me go to Isaiah 53, 5, quoted in Messiah 14 also by Abinadi, verse 5. Jehovah pays the price of peace. Now, this is a great verse because it shows that this person in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 10, is Jehovah himself. The suffering person is Jehovah himself. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The price of our peace he incurred, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, peace is a synonym of salvation in Isaiah 52. And it's also a synonym of the good news, which is the gospel. So, he paid the price of our peace, and with his wounds were healed. Those two words, peace and healing, in this verse, have word links in other parts of the book of Isaiah that tell us that this is Jehovah who's paying this price. And that is why Abinadi and others could say, God himself will come down and pay the price for us, for our transgressions. As we read in Isaiah 26, verse 12, for example, Jehovah brings about his people's peace. It says, O Jehovah, you bring about our peace. Even all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. It's Jehovah who begets his people's peace. So when we link that definition of peace with Isaiah 53, the price of our peace he incurred, and with his wounds we are healed, only Jehovah can do that. Get the idea? See what searching Isaiah does. I can tell you. The same with the word healing in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 19.22 we read, Jehovah heals Egypt and its covenanters. There are people in Egypt who are covenanting with the Lord, and when the Lord smites Egypt, he heals them. It says, Jehovah will smite Egypt and by smiting heal it. Of course, Egypt is a code name for America. We are Joseph in Egypt. Egypt was the great world power of Isaiah's day, which America is today, when you transpose the entire book of Isaiah on the end time, which is the great world power of our day. Well, it's us. Then he says, They will turn back to Jehovah, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. That is, Jehovah does the healing. He's the only one that does the real healing. Even when we lay our hands upon another's head and perform a miracle of healing, it is Jehovah who does the healing. We also see that in Isaiah 57, verse 19, quoted in 3 Nephi by Jesus, verse 21, chapter 21, verse 10. Jehovah heals his servant. Isaiah says, Peace, well-being, to those far off and to those who are near. Of course, the Lord's people, some are in the promised land and some still in exile, and here you have those far off and those who are near. It says, Jehovah, who heals him. Again, Jehovah doing the healing. 
Let me go to Isaiah 53.12. Isaiah 53.12, uh, cross-referencing Mosiah 14.12, talks about the role of a proxy savior. This is who Jesus was. This is who Jehovah was on our behalf. Isaiah 53, verse 12. He poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with criminals. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, the last two verses of Isaiah 53 are talking about the Lord's servant. It's Jehovah speaking about his servant. As Jehovah is speaking about his servant at the end of chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. Whereas, in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 10, it is a spokesman for the people, possibly the servant, speaking about Jehovah. There are two different speakers. That tells you that Jehovah himself is not his own servant. When Jehovah speaks about his servant, it's not himself. And we also see this in 3 Nephi 21, where Jehovah, or Jesus, is speaking explicitly of his servant, his end-time servant, who brings forth the words of Christ, that are on the large plates of Nephi to us, the Gentiles, and talks about him being marred and so forth there. And so, again, I'll repeat that. He poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with criminals. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, this verse, Abinadi, applies to Christ, yes, but it applies specifically in Isaiah's context to God's end-time servant. But that is because all Messianic individuals, whomever they may be, whether Jesus, who atones for this world's transgressions and obtains his people's spiritual salvation, or whether it is his end-time servant, who is a proxy savior of his people in our day, who atones for them only to the degree that he begets Israel's temporal salvation, Israel's physical deliverance from captivity and from dispersion and so forth. We're talking about proxy salvation on different spiritual levels. As Jesus answered to the Most High God as a vassal to an emperor on his spiritual level, so God's end-time servant and anyone under the terms of the Davidic covenant, King David and his ruling heirs, answer to Jesus for the transgressions of their people so that the Lord may deliver them physically from harm, from annihilation, from the threat of death, and so forth. And that is what defines a messianic role in any generation. If we would be saviors of men, as we are commanded to be in the scriptures, then we must take these, this role upon ourselves of being saviors of others under the terms of the Davidic covenant. We answer for, the, for others of the house of Israel, taking their transgressions upon ourselves and answering for them, for their loyalties to the emperor, to Jehovah in this case, to Jesus. By taking their transgressions upon ourselves, offering up our afflictions and our sacrifices unto God on their behalf, so that we might obtain physical deliverance for them on their behalf from the destructions happening in the end time. That is again part of the fellowship of the suffering of Christ in which we become saviors of men. We should take other men's transgressions on ourselves in order to obtain their temporal salvation, not their spiritual salvation, which is the prerogative of Jesus, not our prerogative. All right, so that was kind of a lot to take in, the difference between spiritual salvation, which Jesus begets, and also temporal salvation, which his end-time servant and all his end-time servants 
who fulfill the role of proxy saviors that they perform. And so we're going to summarize and say, Israel's God Jehovah came down to earth to atone for men's transgressions. Yes. And those who would be saviors of men emulate him in doing what he did by suffering with him on behalf of others in order to, to obtain the restoration and to, to be able to restore fully the house of Israel, the Jews, the ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants, immediately preceding the coming of the Lord. The time frame when Jesus performed his atonement was the meridian of time. However, what he accomplished counts for men throughout time, all generations, because it was an infinite atonement. Whereas what the servant and other end-time servants perform happens, obviously, in the end time, that prepare God's people for the coming of Jehovah and restore them to his covenant so that he, Jehovah, may come and dwell among them. We establish Zion among them, and then Jehovah comes and dwells with us throughout the millennial age. So, moving forward, do we honor Jesus for his personal sacrifice on our behalf? What can we do to offer him? What we can do to offer him is emulate him in how he fulfilled his role by restoring the house of Israel in taking upon ourselves their transgressions that God may deliver them out of destruction for our sake, for the sake of their proxy saviors. For the next time, in what way is the Book of Mormon the most correct book? We'll learn about that the next time. According to Joseph Smith's definition, it was the most correct book, and we'll have plenty of evidence for that as we go into the next podcast. Recommended reading for this time around is End Time Prophecy, a Judeo-Mormon Analysis. Again, Chapter 6 on the, in that book talks about the atonement of Jesus Christ. Thank you very much, and I'll see you next time. Please share with, with others. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn why the most correct book. How accurately does the Book of Mormon agree with the Bible from a literary, prophetic, and theological standpoint? Have we examined the evidence 